I want to talk for a few moments about the economy of God. Because I always find this interesting tension. It's almost like we're stuck in the space in between. I spoke at, um, at another event, and, and after I finished speaking, I realized the person who was hosting the event had to get up there and explain that in heaven, everything would be the way I'm talking about it. And it was almost as if he wasn't trying to disclaim what I said. He was just letting everybody know nothing I said was going to happen in this life. <laughs> but in heaven, it's going to happen. I realize a lot of what I say has to have that disclaimer, that asterisk. But in heaven. And, and, and then I'm around people in other events where no one believes in God. No one believes in Jesus. And everyone is so excited about how the universe is for them. Now. It's not that the universe is going to be for them in heaven. The universe is for them right now. It's about that. I don't know who's in a better position. The people who believe in God, who aren't going to get any help until heaven, or the people who don't believe in God, who know the universe is for them. And I started thinking about how there's actually this third dimension that we really don't talk about or understand as clearly. It's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus walked among us, he didn't really talk as much about heaven as a destination after death. He talked about the kingdom of heaven as a reality in this life. And I started wondering how it is that people who don't even believe in God believe the universe is for them, and yet those of us who do believe in God don't seem to understand how the kingdom of heaven is for us, how the kingdom of God is designed and and, and what its economy is, because there is a way that God flows in this kingdom. And I always thought it was interesting that the word economics comes from the same etymology as, as the, the word ecology. Or that there's this relationship that happens. It's an organic relationship that's supposed to take place in the ecology and the ecological system of how humans live together. And that's where we get the idea of economy, that there's supposed to be this healthy ebb and flow of the resources that we need and the resources that others need. And so we're supposed to create what others need and others create what we need. And there's this symbiotic relationship that takes place. It's, it's the same kind of extraordinary relationship that happens between trees and humans. You probably... Most of you haven't hugged a tree recently or expressed thanks to a tree for providing for you what you need. But, but when you exhale, trees are actually receiving a gift from you. And what you exhale provides life for them. And then when you inhale, you're receiving a gift from them. And so we humans, even though we don't think about it, we live in a symbiotic ecological system with trees. So take care of your trees and water them when it's legal. <laughs> because we cannot live without them and they cannot live without us because God designed everything with this beautiful ecological dynamic. And out of that, we humans create what we call economies. And the, part of the reason this was on my mind is several conversations I've had, which I, I'm gonna come back to, but I wanna read a passage in Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30, because 
Jesus' followers were asking him, what will the kingdom of heaven be like? What will the kingdom of God be like? What, what's it like? And, and Jesus would tell these parables of, of the dynamic, what it's like to be a citizen inside of this invisible kingdom, which doesn't simply exist in the afterlife, but exists in this life. And so in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says this, again, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I do have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And I really hesitated reading the last part of this. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This story that Jesus tells, this parable, is actually there to give us insight not how we gain a relationship with God. Not how we gain forgiveness or compassion or mercy or grace. But how the economy of his kingdom works once we're in that kingdom. And it's not how, there's always, I think, a little bit of confusion because if you understand what Jesus taught, you understand that a relationship with God is not something you work for. A relationship with God is not something you earn. A relationship with God is not something that you gain or lose based on how good or bad you are. And that's why the scriptures tell us that, that salvation comes not from works. You cannot work for God's love. God just loves you. So there's the good news. You don't have to do anything to receive God's love. All you have to do is accept it. It's an incredibly ridiculous relationship. But sometimes I think we, we, we get messed up by the S from works to work. 
So, oh, okay, so works aren't involved, so there's no work involved. Just because your relationship with God is not the result of works, things you have to do to earn God's love, it doesn't mean your life in God is absent of work. I think a lot of times we actually think that work is a part of, like, the curse. If we had not messed up the universe, we wouldn't have to work. Wouldn't it be great? We could always be on vacation. But just think how crowded Fiji would be if that were the way it was. And in fact, we have, I think, a misunderstanding of how God designed us and how we're actually designed for work. We're designed to do, to accomplish. We're, a, we're designed to create. We're actually designed to have a need for fulfillment and meeting by what we do. And I, I'm finding even in our, in our cultural conversation, there's almost a, an adversarial relationship to work that says, you see, this is the result of, of, of society isn't working that you actually are expected to be working. And I just want to lay out this possibility that even though your relationship with God comes completely free of any work you do, that God never intended for you or me to be absent of work. He actually created us to create. And creativity takes work. In this particular parable, it's known as the parable of the talents, and I read a different translation when it talks about bags of gold. But I, I actually want you to realize that the word that's used in the scriptures is the word talent. And, and I always thought it's a little confusing because when you talk about the parable of talents and how one person is given one talent or two talents or five talents, you think, oh, is that about like human talent? And the answer is yes and no. That in the time in which Jesus lived, a talent was a measure of money. Like a dollar. Well, not like a dollar. It had worth. In fact, a talent was a lot of dollars, or a lot of euros, or a lot of pounds, or a lot of pesos. Way too many pesos. <laughs> and I was trying to do some, some currency equivalents yesterday, and I came to this basic conclusion that a talent would be about $1.8 million. So if you're given one talent, because when we read this parable and we see that Jesus, the master gave one person five talents, one person two talents, one person one talent, have you ever thought to yourself, I'm just a one talent person? Have you ever had that thought, you know, like, yeah, there are other people, they're like ten talent people, and they're, they're five talent people, and they're, you know, two talent, but I'm just a one talent person. That's $1.8 million, so don't act. You didn't have anything put into you. So the person who was entrusted with the least amount of money here, of resources, was the person who was entrusted with nearly $2 million unearned. Now, if you look up the etymology of the word talent, it's Old English, talente, from Latin, talenta, which is plural for, for talentum, a sum of money. It comes from the Greek talenton. It's a unit of money or weight. In medieval Latin, the sense was extended to ability through the influence of the parable of the talents. In other words, around the Middle Ages, the word talent, which once was a measure of money, now became a measure of gifting, 
of genius, of ability, of intelligence, of skill, of what we now call talent. So when you say that person is really talented, what you're saying is that person is worth a lot. And the lowest unit of talent that Jesus talks about is an incredibly rich and generous amount of talent. So I just want to start here. Don't ever act like I only have one talent. One talent is a lot of talent. <laughs> it just may be latent, potential, undeveloped, unused discarded, overlooked. So one talent is about 1.8 million, just so I can do the math. Two talents is about 3.6 million. Five talents was around 9 million. So this master leaves his servants an immense amount of money. And what I want you to see in this fascinating expression of how the kingdom works, and I think this is hard for us, the first thing Jesus actually tells us, he says, he gave the bags of gold to his servants, and then he went on his journey. And then he leaves. He doesn't give them any instructions. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't tell them how to invest that money. He just leaves them the wealth and entrusts it to them, and then he goes off on a journey. And what God is actually teaching us is he doesn't tell you what to do with what he's given you. See, I think a lot of us have this almost like superstitious or, or, or magical or myth, mythological view of God. And, you know, I just, I'm just waiting for God to tell me what to do. I just want God to tell me what his will is. Anybody, anyone ever feel paralyzed? You're just waiting for God to tell you what to do? But he's on a long journey. <laughs> See, most of us, if we entrusted someone not with $2 million, but $20, we want to micromanage it, All right? You give anyone anything that's yours, you're going to micromanage it. You're going to tell them exactly what not to do with it. Anybody give your kids money? You ever tell them, just do whatever you want? No, you don't. In fact, you can say, bring me back the change. And you will micromanage everything you give because that's who we are. And we think that God is who we are. And so you think, oh, if God, if I were God and I gave someone this freedom, this life, this talent, this ability, this intelligence, I would make sure I told them exactly what to do. And a part of the reason we're not optimizing our God-given capacity and potential is we keep waiting for God to tell us what to do when actually he has already entrusted us to make those choices ourselves. He doesn't tell you what to do with what you've been given. He just tells you what kind of person you need to be. Then he went on his journey. See, I think that's the way the, the disciples felt shortly after this. After Jesus was crucified, when he rose from the dead, he hangs out for them for a little while, and then he leaves. Like, I'm out of here. I mean, can you imagine the trauma? You think you've been through trauma? You watch your Messiah, your leader, the person you believe is God, crucified, and it works. He's dead. You have three days to reconsider your position. On the third day, he helps you reconsider again. 
by conquering death, rising from the dead, leaving an empty tomb, and then showing up because you're not sure. And they think, okay, now, now we're going to take on the world because you're here. And then Jesus is out. And he goes, what, 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 do you, what do you mean you're out? Oh, don't worry, I'm going to put my spirit in you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. I want tangible, physical scars in hands and feet. Jesus, right here. You lead the way. I'm, I'm with you. Don't give me this ethereal Kool-Aid that your spirit lives inside of me. Because I'm not feeling any change. You ever feel like God just left you? And all this jargon about, you know, the Holy Spirit living in you and God being with you. Like, I felt pretty much alone when I blew it. When I failed, when I wasn't enough. And I think sometimes we get frustrated with God. Because if God gives you freedom, he gives you responsibility. See, and we act what we want is God's will so that we can be faithful. No, the truth is we want God's will so we don't have to be responsible. Because the moment... You are empowered to choose. It's on you. I, I, I always find it fascinating to listen to people when there's a failure, to listen to their language. When they go, oh, well, you know, the economy. Oh, you know, it, 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 was, it was my employees. It was my competition. And if you struggle with taking personal responsibility for failure, you're going to struggle with this. Because you will want to find a way that you can abdicate responsibility for your life and push it back on God. And God's like, no, I didn't, I didn't create you to be a puppet. I created you to be a human with free will, with the wonder of being fully alive, with imagination and choice, with creative power. Oh, and by the way, all that comes with responsibility. And then he went on his journey. And then he came back. And that's the scary part. That he comes back. And he comes back and it doesn't matter to him what we do with what's been entrusted to us. So if you want to know how the economy of God works, it works like this. God placed talent inside of you. Everything inherently given to you, your intelligence, your genius, all that latent potential, all that talent, all that capacity, all that is God's gift to you, even your good looks. I don't know why people are proud of their looks. You had less to do with that than anything else in your life. It's just, it's just a genetic roulette board, and you just happen to win that one. So find something else to be proud of, except that God gave it to you. Even that, if you happen to be incredibly attractive, how are you going to use that? For good or evil. Everything is something you've been entrusted with. And then it goes on to tell us that they all went to work. The one who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And then with two bags of gold, gained two more. 
But we always know the other guy's there. The man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled the accounts with them. And so here's a part of the way the kingdom works. God holds us responsible for what he's entrusted us with. He's not holding you responsible for what he gave to that person. He's not holding you responsible for what he entrusted to this person. He's only holding you responsible for what he entrusted in you. And it says that he gave them each based according to their own ability. This part of it is a little irritating, according to their own ability, which you know what that means, right? Okay, soak it in. There are people less talented than you. That's what you're thinking, right? Oh, it's so sad. Wow. Each person, according to their own ability, I just feel so sad that the other people are less talented than me. Or it might really trouble you that there's a possibility there's someone out there more talented than you. Isn't that irritating? And I could accept that if that was just the laws of nature, right? That's just, that's just what random genetic transfers resulted in. But here it says God actually gives people based on their ability. It's even more frustrating to think, oh, wait a minute, God made us different? God did not create us all with the same potential, the same capacity? See, we want to live in a society right now where we want to pretend everyone's the same, everyone's not the same. I know it's hard, but there's someone sitting next to you who's smarter than you. And someone sitting next to you that you're smarter than. They may be the same person, you're just dumber in different things. <laughs> and if you're always trying to measure yourself against the intelligence of someone else, you're going to be missing out on your own unique intelligence. But I want you to see the kingdom not only works for God doesn't tell us what to do, he also... He looks for people he can trust. It says, after a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought another five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came, master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man came who had received one bag of gold. We're going to stop here. We'll get to him in a minute. The whole journey here begins with the story beginning. The kingdom of God is like a man on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with wealth. And then every conversation is, you entrusted me with this. You entrusted me with this. You entrusted me with this. The economy of the kingdom of God is trust. And I've talked to you about this before, but I want to reiterate this again today. When you're immature in your faith, it's all about you asking, can God be trusted? But when you become mature, it is all about knowing that God is asking, can you be trusted? The journey isn't the journey to prove that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. That's already been resolved. The journey is, can you be trusted? See, God is looking for women and men that he can trust. 
And what to me is so fascinating about this conversation, and we oftentimes focus on his response, well done, my good and faithful servant. But what makes you good and faithful is that you can be trusted to do that which is in alignment with the character and intention of your master. And so they didn't have instructions about what to do, but they knew exactly who their master was. And so when the master came back and says, well done, my good and faithful servant, it wasn't just enough that they were faithful, they were good. And that became a reflection of how they saw their master. They knew that if they were going to be trustworthy, they had to do something good with what they'd been entrusted with. And they had to be faithful with it. Then the third one, the man who had received one bag of gold came. The master said, and he said, Master, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, what's fascinating to me is that, one, the master knew that this servant was not trustworthy with even the one. But he still entrusted him with it, giving him a chance to prove himself faithful. But his reflection of why he chose to do nothing but bury the talent was a projection on his master that was actually the description of himself. It's, a, it's an interesting thing psychologically, by the way. When you actually think people can't be trusted, it's because you can't be trusted. When you think everyone's a liar, it's because you are one. If you think everyone will steal, it's because you will. What, what we've learned in this psychological journey of understanding human motivation and identity is that human beings project on everyone else who they actually really are. So ironically, if you think everyone can be trusted, you're wrong. But you can be trusted. <laughs> if you think people will always tell the truth, it's probably not true. But you will tell the truth. See, when you believe everyone is really driven by compassion, you might be gravely disappointed in life, but you are driven and motivated by compassion. The beautiful thing about it is what you project on other people is actually an interpretation of yourself. And so when this man who buried his talent said, I knew that you were a hard man, he was wrong. But he was a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. He was wrong about the master, but he was right about himself. And so I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. And so he acted as if the master would treat him the way he would treat other people. And one of the things that to me is so fascinating is that, see, God is looking for people he can trust. And he wants to entrust them with more. And, and we're going to look at this, but I want you to realize that, that what you believe about God actually shapes you. See, the way the economy of God works is that the economy of God opens up when you believe God is good. You start living a life that is good. When you believe that God is generous, you start becoming generous. When you believe God is compassionate, you start becoming compassionate. When you believe God can be trusted, you start becoming trustworthy. What you believe about God is who you become. And if you think that God cannot be trusted, you will never trust or be trustworthy. If you think that God is harsh and judgmental and condemning 
If you think God is motivated by wrath, you're going to live your entire life in fear. You spend your entire life just holding on to what you have and never having the freedom to become who God created you to be. See, a huge part of this concept of grace isn't just that you have freely received forgiveness and life through Jesus. A huge part of this concept of grace is the freedom to fail, the freedom to risk, the freedom to imagine and create, the freedom to know that if you are faithful, that God is going to celebrate you no matter what the outcome is. Some of you are trapped and all your capacity and talent and potential is being limited because you don't know how good God is. And once you know that God is the God who can do more, you're not going to be afraid of losing what you have. He says, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I do not scatter seed. Oh, and he says, see, the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. That phrase always kind of like unnerves me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can go with lazy or unimaginative, right? He just buried the talent. And what's interesting is, is here's what is yours. See, he doesn't see that the potential of the talent belongs to God. Here's the beauty of it. The talent you've been given doesn't just belong to God. It's the potential of that talent being used well belongs to God. The full capacity inside you, that belongs to God. See, I don't know what your potential is. I just know this. Your potential is not measured against anyone else. But God will measure you not on the talent you've been given, but what you've done with the talent you've been given. And he says to him, you're not just lazy, you're actually wicked because I gave you the opportunity to do good and you didn't do it. I think most of us spend our lives trying to get rid of the bad things we do rather than focusing on the good things we were created to do. What if you began to measure your life not on what sins you were able to get rid of, what addictions you were able to get rid of, what's, what, what habits you were able to get rid of, but start focusing on how much good you actually are doing in the world. I, I, I mean, when people would ask me early on, how did you get rid of all these like, habits and addictions or sins in your life? And I said, I just ran out of time. I, I, it's true. I, I look back and I realize, oh, it wasn't like a strategy. I just ran out of time. I mean, you know, before I met Jesus, I had a lot of time to do destructive things. I've just, I was available. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then when I started living my life to make the world better, I just ran out of time. I just, one year I look back and I realize, wow, when did I stop doing that? Oh, yeah, that, that year. I just ran out of time. See, some of you are depressed because you have way too much time on your hands. You're anxious because you're, you're, you're overthinking everything. So you're anxious because you're thinking, not living. See, some of you don't even realize it. Just the, the negative emotions inside of you, that's proof that you have way too much time. If you get up in the morning and decide, I'm going to do good in the world. I'm going to make someone's life a little bit better. I'm going to bring joy somewhere. I'm going to bring optimism somewhere. I'm just going to love someone, be compassionate. I'm going to be kind. I mean, don't, don't even just... Don't even think about trying to go make a billion dollars. Just be kind. Just make the world a little bit better and watch what happens in your life. You're going to run out of time for all your negative emotions. Everyone, I, whenever I hear people like slandering and, 
and gossiping and backbiting and hating on the internet and realize, wow, that person has way too much time. I don't have time to follow people and troll them and hate them. <laughs> I'm too busy living my life. And what we need to realize is that, that God is looking for people he can trust. And, and, and I, I have to have this brief economic conversation. I, I was speaking at an event, and, and there was another like, speaker. He was a comedian. And then he did like, the comedy show before me, which, and I was much funnier. And, uh, <laughs> and then afterwards, we had like a dinner. They were all there. And, and his daughter was there, and she was in her 20s. And as we're all talking, I realized she, she said, I go to Mosaic in Hollywood. I said, oh, that's amazing. What are, what are the chances of that? As we're all talking, I don't know where it came from, because I, I think the pastor of that place and his, and his team are very, very conservative politically. And, and she goes, well, I'm a socialist. And you could feel the anxiety in her dad. I, I, can, I can feel emotions really, really well. I can just feel it when she said it. And I think she said it because she wanted to create that feeling. And, uh, and, and then I said, oh, that's fascinating. I said, tell me more. Why are you a socialist? And she said, well, because Jesus was one. I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. And uh, I said, could you unwrap that a little bit more? And, and you see, I, I, I thought, oh, I, I used to be there. See, when, when I came to faith in Jesus, I was pretty much a socialist. And I thought Jesus was one, because everything I ever heard about Jesus was that he hated rich people and liked poor people. So he was a socialist. Like, it's, it's, it's so simple, right? You know? And, and and, and, a lot, and so a lot of my early economic philosophy was either anarchy or socialism. Destroy every institution, destroy everything, and just start humanity over again with socialism. And, uh, and as we were talking, I immediately thought of this parable. Because this is what Jesus does. See, after he has this conversation with them, and he calls this guy not only just lazy but wicked, he says, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. That really bothered me right away. I'm telling you, as a former socialist, that was very disturbing. I'm going, no, 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 no. You know, take from the guy who has 10 and give it to the guy who has zero so they, we can all be even because that's the goal is for everyone to be equal. He said, no, take the bag from him or give it to the guy with five. At least he's working, right? You know, he's working hard. Now he has six, you've got 10, it's closer. Just throw the other guy into a different system. And he says, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. If you've ever wondered whether Jesus actually saw economics from a socialist perspective, this, this passage should actually change your mind. Because Jesus is not a capitalist, that's for certain. But he's definitely not a socialist. You know what he actually is? He actually builds his kingdom based on trustworthiness. And he's not about you or me in that sense. He's not, oh, I want to give him more. I want to give him more. I want to give her more. Oh, I, just, I, I like her so much. I'm going to give her more. No, he's saying, who can I trust with more? See, Jesus is all about the distribution of goodness. And if he can trust you with doing more good in the world, he's going to give more. See, because the way the economy of the kingdom of God works is that everything moves toward the movers. 
And if you sit around all your life going, why isn't God blessing me? Why isn't God working in my life? You're never going to understand how the economy of the kingdom works. See, God entrusts us. And if you're here right now, you have been given talents. You have been given capacity, intelligence, passion, skills, experiences, gifts. You've got stuff. And to act like you don't is a denial of God's generosity in your life. I remember one time I was with these 10, like, leaders of faith. And, and, and the guy in charge said, I want everyone to tell us your name and what your, what your gift is to the world. And people going around, and it was awkward. No one wants to say what their gift is to the world, right? <laughs> but everyone's trying to cooperate. And we got to one guy who goes, my name is this, and I don't have any talent. I just work hard. You can just feel everyone else just turn into a raisin. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, man, I should have I said that. <laughs> and yet that was a denial of God's goodness. See, when you say, I don't have any talent, I just work hard. What you're saying is God gave me zero. No, it can be both. God gave me talent, and I work hard. God gave me talent, and it takes hard work to turn that raw potential into capacity to actually do something important in the world. And the kingdom of God moves toward the movers. I'm telling you this. It is not for God. Equal outcomes. Even in a just world, what God wants is equal opportunity. But he's not going to manipulate things so that there's equal outcome. He just has some people who are just a little smarter than me, a little more talented than me, a little more gifted than me, and they're a little more savvy than me. I don't know what the combination is. And so they have a greater capacity than I have, and my measurement in life is not them. Because otherwise, I'm just going to find someone who's just a little dumber than me. I mean, I wasn't looking at you. <laughs> a little less talented than me. A little less educated than me. A little less capable than me. I'm going to measure my life against you. The reality is, I need to be a steward of whatever God has placed in me. You need to be a steward of what God has placed in you. And if you will be faithful to what you have, I'm telling you, God will entrust you with more. But stop acting like God isn't coming through. And stop asking God for more when you're not even responsible and faithful with what you have. The best way to prove to God that you can be entrusted with more is to be trustworthy with what he has already given you. We, were, we do this podcast called Battle Ready, Aaron and I, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and Aaron's always a source of wonderful controversy. Because <laughs> he says what a lot of us are thinking but just don't want to say. And I don't know how the cities work here, but in L.A. we just had, you know, a campaign for mayor and Karen Bass won and I hope she does great. But there are a lot of people who are for a guy named Rick Caruso who is a billionaire. And so there was this conversation that happened on the internet, Twitter, wherever it was, about qualifications that 
what were Karen Bass's qualifications, what Rick Caruso's qualifications. Then I saw this response, and it really struck me. We wiped out the person's last name. They responded, Aaron, becoming a billionaire is not a qualification. By the way, it is. Because people do not become billionaires because they're standing in the right place where the rain falls. There are choices they made to achieve success. It's evidence of privilege and exploitation. Here's the line. No one gets that rich through ethical means. And then about Caruso, Caruso had zero qualifications for the job and thought he could buy it. The right person won. I don't even want to address that. I want to address that one section. No one gets that rich through ethical means. We are in a philosophical intersection in our culture that says if you're poor, you're good. And if you're rich, you're evil. And I want to throw out a third possibility. That good people can accomplish great things. And that if God has given you intelligence and gifting and you did the hard work of being educated and refining your skills, you cannot allow the cultural pressure to be less, to diminish what God created you to accomplish. Look, I spent a decade working with the poor. And I can tell you there are good people who are poor. And there are corrupt people who are poor. And I spent at least a decade with people who are rich. And I can tell you there are corrupt people who are rich. But there are good people who are rich. The reason I bring this up is this. The greatest loophole from living up to your potential is this little voice in your head that tells you it's wrong to succeed. It's wrong to achieve. It's wrong to aspire to greatness. It's wrong to live up to your full potential. And what Jesus says, it's evil when you don't. Because if you've been given more privilege, more opportunity, more intelligence, more talent. Oh, by the way, the guy with one talent, his 1.8 million went to zero. The guy with two talents, his 3.6 million went to 7.2 million. And the guy with five talents, his 9 million went to 19.8 million. See, you know what I hope? I hope that you decide to become the best human being. I hope you decide to live a life of compassion and generosity, of integrity. I hope you decide to live a life that reflects the character of Jesus. And that you take responsibility and stewardship for all the God-given talent and capacity in you. And without embarrassment or excuse, you create everything God created you to accomplish in this life. And then prove the world wrong. You can have great success and be an instrument of great good. That's the economy of God. He looks for people he can trust, and then he entrusts them with more. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. I know it's an unusual talk between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I want you to take responsibility for who God created you to be. 
I want you to live up to your God-given potential. The world needs you to be the best version of you. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus with your life, I want you to understand something. Jesus wants you to give him your life, not so that you'll be less, but so that you will become everything God created you to become. You will never achieve your God-given potential without the God who created you. And maybe this is your moment to say, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to live my life fully, beautifully, generously. I want to do all the good you've created me to do. Father, I pray in this moment for each person, first of all, has not yet come to know you. That today they would cross the line of faith and open their lives to you, Jesus. I pray that in this room, each person who has not yet trusted you would in this moment just say, Jesus, I give you my life. To become everything you created them to be. To be a force of good, an instrument of your kingdom. And God, I pray for each individual in this space, every person within the sound of my voice, that they would have the courage to not bury their talent, to not move to doing nothing because they're so afraid of doing something. And God, for everyone who buried their talent, I pray they would just grab the shovel and dig it back up and say, Jesus, I want to be faithful. I know you're a good God, so I'm not afraid to risk. I know you're a good God. I'm not afraid to live the life you've created me to live. And Father, I pray there would just be an explosion out of this room of people who are fully alive, free to become who you created them to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we just thank God for this morning? our time together. I just want you to know there is extraordinary capacity in you. Don't measure it against anyone else. No one else is your standard. But get alone with God and do an assessment of what He's placed in you. And then ask God, to do a work in you so that he can trust you with more and more and more. How much good could you do? Man, that's the question that should drive us every day. God bless.